Uh, it's from Acts 2, uh, 14 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judah, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of the foreknowledge of God who crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and in his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He did, did, this, did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, 
Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word, or received his word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may all be seated. Wow, you had to stand up for a long time for that one, huh? Well, I have to stand up the rest of the time, so I don't feel so bad for you all. Just saying. I'm not complaining. I like standing up here. It's fine. Well, tonight we are continuing in Acts, in case you didn't notice, since we read half a chapter of Acts. I'm sure you could have figured that out. Tonight, we are going to be looking at Peter's sermon, which is sort of interesting. We could have just read it and then just been done, because that was Peter's sermon. And uh, yeah, we could have eaten spaghetti earlier. But we're going to walk through this a little bit and kind of go through a few of the points that Peter makes. Before we do that, I think it's important for us to back up just a wee bit and look at the context in which Peter is delivering the sermon. So it's last week we looked at the the first part of chapter 2. And in the opening verses of chapter 2, John was going through what Pentecost was, what was going on uh, that day. And some of those details. And I think it's, it's good to go back. And I want to give a little additional context before we jump uh, into the sermon. So don't worry. It's not going to impact uh, the rest of our time. It's not a double sermon or anything here. Okay. If we look at verse, uh, let's look at verse 4. So verse 4 says, and so we have 120 people. They're up in the upper room. There's some thought to that being uh, that room that they're I guess renting is part of maybe the temple complex, possibly, but it's near the temple. It's close. Verse 4 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. One verse, and even in that one verse, two mentions of the Spirit. So clearly, the Holy Spirit has come. I think that's the point, right? Verse 5 says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, it says dwelling there. I think it's giving the indication that's where they were staying. Uh, because it starts to then give you this idea that there are Jews from all over the place, right? A lot of complicated place words. But as you look here, it says that a multitude came together and they were bewildered. So something is happening. There, there was enough commotion going on. So either this sound of rushing wind and what actually took place with the Spirit coming, or what happened right afterward, everybody's wondering what's going on. 
So, so just think about it, because I think sometimes we over-sanitize some of these things and make them boring. Uh, because if you have 120 people who've been waiting, like Jesus said, for power to come, and they, they just, this, then this happens. When the Holy Spirit comes, do you think they're all sitting nicely in the, in the room up there, just kind of chatting about stuff? I'm going to guess that they were probably hooting and hollering. That's, that's a, a, you know, translating it to Southern. They're, they were hooting and hollering. And they were probably jumping around, dancing. I don't know. Who knows what it looked like. But the excitement had to be up to 11. That something magnificent that had not happened before was happening. And yeah, also speaking a different languages, which would have been pretty neat. Now, it, it's either that they were just speaking and they didn't know they were speaking another language and everyone else heard their own language or they actually acknowledged, wow, I'm speaking a different language. I'm going to guess it's actually the first, the, the, the former, that they didn't even really perceive that that's what was going on, but everybody else did. Because that's what's indicated. Everybody says, hey, I'm hearing everybody speaking in my own, my own language. That's very weird. So they're there for the festival. We've got all these people. It says a multitude of people are out there, right? And then he gives you a list. And um, usually we skip lists. Let me be honest. If you're reading and you see a list, do we kind of just skip it over or just kind of glance at it? It's okay to admit it. You can put your hand up if you sometimes just glance and sort of skip. That's okay. Everyone else, I know you're lying. Because we kind of do that, right? Everybody knows, no one's painstakingly going through necessarily if you're just reading it. Now, if you're there for the purpose of studying that, then I know that you'll dig in a little deeper. But in just reading through this, we just kind of want to get through it. But if you were to actually go through, and we're not going to do this, but if you actually go through and map out where all these people are from, it's all over the place. And it's actually listed out in an organized way, going from east to west. And so what you have represented there is a listing of the nations. Okay, What's going on in this whole event? I think it's really important to, to recognize. So the first thing we'll recognize is that these are all Jews. Okay, Either born Jewish, of Jewish lineage, or proselytes. does say that, which means they, they converted, but converted in such a way that they did it Lawfully, so they're now considered part of Israel. I've always wondered, if you're a proselyte, do you get to pick a tribe? Like, I don't know that part. You know, be like, oh, I'm for the... Uh, it could have been where they lived, I don't know. Maybe someone does. But you have these individuals here, they're, they're all Jews. They're there for the festival, the festival of Pentecost. And it, yeah, it does mention in verse 11 that there's proselytes and then it mentions Cretans and Arabians. I'm not sure why it talks about proselytes and then lists out two more. But they're the ones who said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. All were amazed and perplexed. But I think it's important to note that right there, it says that they all were talking about the works of God. Okay, so imagine this. They all come out. They're all excited. People are there. And so what are they doing? Now that they're speaking these different languages, they're all over the place talking to different people about the works of God, most likely near the temple complex, most likely like with this huge group. So it's, it's semi-chaotic what's going on, at least not in a normal sense, sort of like everyone line up or everybody sit down like this and, and listen. So 
what it sort of seems like is everyone is speaking to everyone about the mighty works of God. So that's all happening. So now imagine that's all happening. And then there's some people off to the side. There's always people off to the side. Any event, there's always those people off to the side. Maybe you're an off to the sides person and I'm not detracting from that at all. I'm usually off to the side watching as well. So you have some of these people over here and they're looking and they're saying, what is going on? This is crazy. What, you've got, just got utter chaos here and all these people speaking all these other languages and doing things here. What is everybody talking about? And that's where someone says, they, all, they must all be drunk. Now, why do we have this scene set up where you have the people off to the side looking in and you have all these different people who are from these different places being spoken to by 120 mostly Galileans? They're all talking to them. What you're seeing here is something really special and unique. This is... um, for lack of a better phrase, a reversal of Babel. I think in a couple times in the past, we've kind of talked about this in this context. But this is a reversal of what took place at the Tower of Babel. So you got to think back. Uh, Not like you're remembering Tower of Babel, but remember the story of the Tower of Babel, where what was going on? Everyone had the same language, and what were they all doing? Building a tower. Now, there's a lot that we could talk about there. But in general, what's taking place is they're building a tower to their own glory, so they said, and not to the glory of God. So the point was, this was a focal point of rebellion for the general population of earth at that time to build a tower. God, speaking amongst himself, says, let's go down and take a look at this goes down to take a look, gives a phrase. If, if they continue in this way, do you remember what the phrase God says about all the people together? If they continue like this, what? Nothing will be impossible to them. You ever thought about that phrase? Nothing will be impossible to them. Now, we could spend a ton of time there. We won't, but the point was, All people together were rebelling against God. So the judgment that God laid down on the people to basically slow that down, because it hasn't stopped people from rebelling, but it slowed it down, is to divide out the people according to families into different languages so they can't communicate. And by doing that, you have a separation of the nations. This is where that comes from. The nations comes from this time. Before that, they were generally just people of different families, but still all together. And so you have this dividing out of the peoples. Now, what you have in Genesis 10 is what's called generally the table of nations, where it divides out the groupings of people into a general 70 groups, 70 different groups. And then from those groups, you get different tribes and get different nations and those different things. So what you have there is that dividing up. Do you remember when, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the ascension 
And the disciples ask, is it time now for you to establish your what? Say it louder. Your earthly kingdom. Is it time for you to set up the kingdom now? Is it time? And one of the things we talked about was Jesus didn't give really a clear answer. Specifically, he didn't say no. But what he said was, okay, you're going to have to wait. Spirit's going to come, right? But he basically was saying, I'm going to go to the Father. And what happens next is going to be something specially unique. So he goes to the Father, to, he ascends, he sits on the throne. And then they wait. So when this event takes place, what this is, is it's a reversal of Babel. This is the first step. So we have the languages are no longer a barrier. So that is now pushed away. But is this the nations? Who does he say? Who is he talking to at this point? Is he talking to the nations when Peter steps up? We've read it. We'll go to it here in a second. Is he talking to the nations? Who is he talking to? Verse 14, Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them saying, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. We would generally categorize them all as what? Jews. So they're all Jews. But however, among them in this massive group, you have people who were already established in all of those different places. This is the beginning of the breakdown of Babel, the breakdown of the curse, and the inauguration of what will become the fulfilling of the kingdom of God right here. Okay. In, we don't have a ton of time to go through it, but in Deuteronomy 32, there's a, a unique verse. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, and I'm only going to bring it up because it's important for what we're going to see in a minute. So this is Deuteronomy. This is the end of the law. Actually, if we go back to verse 5, or sorry, 4. The rock, his perfect, I'm sorry, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without inquiry, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Remember that one. Skipping down to verse 7, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father, he will show you your elders and they will tell you when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance and he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is his allotted inheritance. So the setup for this, I know this is a lot of setup, but believe me, it makes a difference for the payoff. What is happening in Deuteronomy is there is a discussion saying, at the time when the nations were divided, Tower of Babel, God placed over the nations, they were divided out according to the number of the sons of God, according to a number of high-ranking angel. I think we've talked about this before. These are the what those nations would call lowercase g gods, they were the ones that were set over them. And he said, but my portion is Israel. The very next chapter after the Tower of Babel is the calling of Abraham. 
So the nations basically say, we want nothing to do with you, God. God says, fine. I'll place over you these. So the nations get these gods, lowercase g gods, to kind of look over that. And we talked about it in Daniel. You've got the prince of uh, Greece represented, the prince of Persia represented. We've talked about some of these things before. But the important piece here is that the very next thing that God does after the dividing of the nations is, I'm going to make my portion. So he specifically picks a man and a woman who can't have children, who are way too old to have children, and says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. Now, is that natural? Could you do that naturally? No. And in fact, it talks a lot about Isaac being the son of promise, son of the covenant. And so God makes a nation. He says, this is going to be mine. This is my portion. It then becomes a story. The whole rest of the Old Testament becomes a story of the nation, God's portion, versus the nations. And that's the setup. Now, Israel was supposed to be not only God's chosen allotted group of people, his inheritance, but he tells them in Exodus 19, he tells them before he gives them the law, he says, I just want you to know, you are going to be not just my nation, you're going to be a nation of priests. The point of which is God's inheritance, his nation, was supposed to be the one who shared with the other nations who God was by their example, by following in line with who God was and what he wanted them to do, living in accordance with the law, not for salvation, but for display, that they are his people. So, did Israel become this beacon of righteousness for the whole world, so the whole world knew who Yahweh was because of Israel and their example. Did that happen? Did that take place? Did you just have the nations just clamoring to understand who God was because of what Israel was doing? There's maybe a tiny, tiny glimmer of that during the reign of Solomon, where in his wisdom and his wealth, people came to ask about his That's probably as close as you got but we know how Solomon turned out. It didn't last very long, right? Solomon became quite selfish and loved his legacy more than he loved the law of the Lord. So you have this people who were supposed to be this, but they weren't. And they instead actually followed after the other gods. Isn't that the story of the Old Testament? They follow after gods and they get in trouble. They cry out to the Lord and the Lord delivers them. And then they do it again. And then they do it again. And then they do it again. And then one more time. And God is so patient. He waits until finally he, he takes the northern kingdoms away, scatters them among the nations. And then Judah is faithful a few times, the southern kingdom, until they also are taken away into the nations, and we get the story of Daniel, we get the story of the exile, and finally they come back. And once they come back, they don't go after the other gods anymore, but it's not the same, right? This is where we find ourselves at this point in time. So when Peter is there and he starts to speak, as we look in verse 14, he stands with the 11, lifts up his voice, and addresses them. That's 
all of them. Come to find out later, it's thousands of people who are all there. And so Peter stands up and, well, we can look and see what he says here. Men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you that, or let it be known to you, give ear to my words. Verse 15, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. I think this is the first joke in a sermon. They all say, you guys are drunk. He's like, we're not drunk. This is 9 a.m. Probably got a chuckle. Okay, that's, but there you go. It's 9 a.m. We're not drunk. He said, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Turn there. Turn to Joel chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible right there. If you're using a techno Bible, you can beep, bop, boop over. Joel chapter 2. What he gives here is, is Peter is going to quote Joel right here. So this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. So I'm going to turn over there too because it is ever so slightly different. The reason is, is that what they used at that time was most likely Septuagint. So it's a little bit different. Verse 28. sticking. There we go. Look at verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Pause. Something's different. Do you notice what's different there? Acts chapter 2 versus Joel chapter 2. Do you see something different? What is different? Someone yell it out. This is an interactive sermon. I'm sorry? I just couldn't hear you. All? No, there's something specific. There's a phrase that's different. Oh, nailed it. Cambria gets a, gets a prize or something. Um, in the last days, Peter adds it. Why does he add that? Any idea? I guess that's my job. Here, I'll tell you. Um, look at the context of Joel. Okay, now You can read through a few different verses. You can read the headings. And it'll probably give you an idea. But in some of the headings here, if you look to the heading of chapter 2, what does your Bible say for the heading as a, a summation of chapter 2? The day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? <laughs> it's a bad day for those who oppose the Lord and is the day of salvation for those who are with him. The day of the Lord is a phrase that will mean that coming day of the Lord. It's usually called the great, sometimes called the terrible day of the Lord. Is the day when the Lord returns. This whole letter of Joel is talking about what's going to happen later. And in chapter 2 specifically, it's talking about the day of the Lord. This is the end. What we would normally call the last days. What Peter does here is he sort of encapsulates the purpose of Joel. And he puts it there in just that quick phrase. Pretty smart, actually. That must have been the spirit. Because we know Peter. 
in the last days, these things will happen. The context of this is in the last days. Now for us, when we say in the last days, what are some things we think of when we say the last days? Usually locusts are probably there, which is fitting because this is Joel, so that there's a locust army. What else? The tribulation, what else? What else? Is, what? Trumpets. Yeah, there's, probably, there's trumpets going. Fire. Sorry? The ju- judgments, the last judgment. Yeah. So there's all these things. And so what we normally include in the day of the Lord is pretty much just sort of end time judgment kind of things. There is something else that the Jews would add in to their idea of the last days. And it's found in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, some of you may be really familiar with this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by my hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Notice notice what this is right here, okay? Listen. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And then notice what happens right after verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives sun for the light of day, fixed order by the moon, stars for the light at night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. What he starts to enumerate is, is, I am the creator. Look at the created order. I put the sun in the sky. I put the moon in the sky. I put the stars in the sky. But what do we get with apocalyptic language? We get the sun is darkened. The moon is, turns to blood. The stars fall out of the sky. What God is establishing is, is, I am this God. I am the creator. And when my new covenant comes, it's going to look like this. But it's going to look like this at the end when I come. Uh, Ezekiel 36, this is also important. Ezekiel 36, verse 32, you don't have to turn there. Therefore says the Lord of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. Notice this among the nations notion here, right? To which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, for which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all countries and bring you to your own land. What does that sound like? Sounds a little bit like the situation in Acts chapter 2. I think it's a precursor to what will happen later, but still. 
I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. Notice this. And a new spirit will I put in you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I have gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is that connection that they have to the end. When Peter says in the last days, all of this we just read about the new covenant is included in that. And what do we have in Acts chapter 2? We have a listing out of here's all these other nations that God had brought to Jerusalem to then hear this message. And what do you think they're going to do eventually? They're going to go where? Back home to the nations. This is literally fulfilling these steps that God gave for the new covenant. Now, a lot of times when we think new covenant, what we think of is what? We think of, oh, the establishment of the new covenant at the, at the Lord's Supper. We talk about that. This is the blood of my new covenant. But a lot of times we take then that idea from there for some reason. We then take it and then we shove it way far in the future and say, oh, but he's also talking about, you know, like when everything's made whole. But what about this stuff in between? So Jesus says, I'm establishing the new covenant. Does he just jump over this whole time and just jump to the far future? That's what Peter's getting at in the sermon. Now, that was the introduction. These people aren't drunk. We already did the joke. Verse 17, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even your male servants, your female servants from from those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. We'll pause there for a second. Now he says we'll pour it out on all flesh, but the context of Joel 2, who's Joel writing to? He's writing to Israel. Who's Peter talking to? I'm sorry? He's talking to Jews. Okay, so when we see pour out on all flesh, the context is this flesh. All right? That's the context there. A lot of times the emphasis is placed firmly on these few verses. And everyone gets excited about the visions, and the prophecy. And what they do is they take this and they connect it with the coming of the Spirit like we're only talking about the coming of the Spirit and and sort of like what the Spirit says and does and the exciting things that happen in Acts. But that's not the full context of what Peter's saying here. We're forgetting the last half of this quotation. He says, I'll show my wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. So I've heard it preached where we so firmly talk about these prophecies and visions and we place it right there with the coming of the Spirit and we say, this is about the Spirit coming. It's like, it's about so much more. It's about so much more than that. This is talking about basically this time period from the time that Jesus is seated, the right hand of the Father, all the way to the end till he comes again. This is what Peter affectionately calls the last days, and we chuckle now because it's been how many years? It's been quite a few days for those last days. 
But the point is, in the last days, this new covenant is going to be in effect. Is the new covenant in effect? It is. We'll talk about it more in just a second. But we're also looking forward to all of the fulfillment that God has for these last days, which most of these haven't happened yet. We don't have the, the signs in the, in the heavens and on the earth, the vapor, smoke, blood, fire, sun being turned to darkness, moon being turned to blood, all those sorts of things. We don't have all that yet. We're in the midst of those days when those things will be taking place. Because think about it. Jesus died. We had the resurrection. He declared his victory in Hades, which we'll talk about this in just a moment here too. And then he ascends to the Father. That's where we are. This is that moment. We're in those last days. Verse 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the new covenant. See, before, in order for you to know who God was, you had to go to Israel. And you had to hear the, the word of the Lord. And generally, you'd become a proselyte. That's not always what happened. But generally, you had to go to Israel. You had to go to the Jews to find out truth. The new covenant is different. Because God is seeking out people and he's removing that heart of stone and he's giving them this heart of flesh and he's putting their spirit in them, his spirit in them. That's how you know we're in these last days. That's how you know you are in this new covenant. You no longer have to go to Israel to find out these things. Side note, this is what sparks all of that conversation that we talked about in Galatians. There were people who still wanted to be a part of that old covenant Versus this new covenant. Well, they have to become Jews, right? No, they don't. We're in the new covenant. Peter tried to make that clear on Pentecost, but apparently they weren't there for that. Men of Israel, verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 22. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Now, this is most likely Peter is talking to the, the people of Jerusalem. Right? The visitors may not have been there. So he's probably talking to those who are over here, saying, you, you saw this stuff. You know what we're talking about. Jesus came, he accomplished these things, and he clearly is the Messiah. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He died, and there was the resurrection. Completely conquered death. Verse 25, Peter goes into a second point here. David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. This is taken from uh, Psalm 16, where he talks about this. Look at verse 30, uh, sorry, 27, where he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one See corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make uh, me full of gladness with your presence. And a lot of this is relay, relaying things that the disciples are just now gaining real understanding of after having been with Jesus for those 40 days and then waiting, right, till Pentecost. But Peter's relaying to them, you have to understand the pivotal nature of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. That is really that inauguration of our new covenant. 
It was the fulfillment of the old and the beginning of the new. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, he is both dead, I'm sorry, he's both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had shown with an oath to him that he would set his descendant on, uh, one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And he goes on to say, and he is also seated at the right hand of the Father. Everything is in place. So even going back to the disciples at the ascension saying, are we going to get this physical kingdom? We talked about that. That was such a small view of what was supposed to happen. What's happening here on this day of Pentecost is that inauguration of that new covenant and actually the moving out of the Jews to the nations to fulfill what they could not fulfill before because they were not filled with the Spirit. When the Spirit came, then they were able to go and to fulfill these things that they were supposed to accomplish. Verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. We talked about this. This is what Jesus is doing now. He's waiting. He's waiting for these times, these last days, to be accomplished. The thing that they're waiting on, the thing that Jesus is waiting for, is the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. Who knows what that is? Well, that's that's the Father who knows. But when that takes place, when the nations have been brought in, then Jesus will return on that great and terrible day of the Lord. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37, we get this response. So all of these people who are here, they they have that context already. So when Peter preaches this, they they already have that context. So the pieces all came together, and now they're, they're stuck with the implications Verse 37, they they, they heard this and they were cut to the heart, it says. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what do we do? What shall we do? It's one of the most theological questions you can ever ask. So what? What do we do? What do we do now? The response. Verse 38, Peter says to them, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone. That right there, that verse 39, Peter applies Joel. Who's this for? Everybody. This is for your children. Remember it says there, your sons and daughters will see visions, will prophesy, dream dreams. Verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. That means he kept on preaching. 
So we don't know the rest of it. This apparently was the best part. That's what we have recorded. Saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Remember we've read that? From that crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So three things Peter says. In response to this understanding, you should repent. So turn from your current trajectory. Go the other way. Be baptized, which baptism, what's not being taught here is you have to be baptized to be saved. But where they were all standing, in amongst all of the other Jews, baptism was identification. The same way that John kind of had did it, right? You're identifying in a certain way. This was, this was different, whereas you are identifying with Jesus, the apostles, with this new covenant moving forward. So it was a, a community identification, and it was also a signal to the kingdom of darkness, you lost another one. Our baptisms are a declaration to the kingdom of darkness that they lost. And the third thing is they received the Spirit to be empowered to live a life holy and in submission to God, to his moving, and to the establishment and to the building of the kingdom. Here is what is so amazing about this. So think about all these Jews who are here. Their experience with the Spirit, it's not that they had none, but if we think back, who had the Spirit in the Old Testament. There's specific cases we could point to where someone would have the Spirit. But who, who are these people? Generally, they would be of one of three offices. Maybe a fourth. Judge. That was the fourth. That was my pinky. Judge. They came before that. But what, what's one of the other offices? I heard one of them. Prophet. Priest. King, right? So you have these who were anointed, who were normally, it would, it would say in there, and the Spirit came upon them and they accomplished the thing, right? Spirit came upon Saul, Spirit came upon David, Spirit came upon Samson. Spirit would come upon them and they do and accomplish these things. So for most Jews, the thought is, is who gets the Spirit? It's they get the Spirit. They accomplish things. What's different about the new covenant? Who gets the Spirit? They get the Spirit. And who else? their sons and their daughters and their fathers and their mothers. It's everybody. So now imagine, instead of the kingdom being ruled by a king, having a prophet and the priests, now it's all of us. So imagine God unleashing his people, all empowered with the Holy Spirit, to go and to do and to accomplish that's amazing. That is what was happening in that upper room. In that upper room, 120 people received the Spirit and they came down from there and they just started going to work. They just started talking to everybody about the works of God. Peter stands up and he preaches this sermon, which by the way, can you imagine bumbling Peter preaching this sermon, quoting Joel and making connections, deep connections with Who preached that sermon? That was a spirit through Peter. Now, Peter obviously was used by the Holy Spirit, but this is Peter all of a sudden acting like a prophet. He's preaching this sermon. 
and what takes place later. As we go through the book of Acts, what we start to see is where these individuals go. They're not prophets. They're not priests. They're not kings. But they're going out and they're filled with the Spirit. And they're accomplishing the things that God has called them to do in a way and in a manner that they remember hearing about in the days of old. But now it's all of them. And I think we forget that. We forget that because just tonight... I prepared something and I'm standing up here and I'm saying a thing. But that's just right now. When you leave here, who is the one who has the spirit? Is it just me? No, who is it? It's all of you. So when we leave here and we're filled with the spirit, what should we go and do? We should go and start talking to people about the mighty works of God. It is called for all of us to do that. It's one of the reasons I really don't like the term congregation and congregant. I don't like it. That, to me, gives an idea of there's a fight behind the school and everybody is congregating and they are watching something happening. You guys shouldn't be watching something happening. You guys should be happening. Don't get into fights. That's what I'm saying. That's not the point. Don't, don't write that part down. What I'm saying is, is that you are, the, you are the movers and the shakers. You are the ones who are supposed to go out and do and accomplish these things. All this is supposed to do is take, eh, maybe get a little, little more ammunition, maybe get us all on the same page, but it's, it's you going out. That's the difference between what was before and what's now. In these last days that we're in, it is going to take all of us filled with the Spirit to accomplish the things that God has called for us to do. And if you are ever in doubt, it, is, it is says that God has called us to certain good works that he has then gifted and equipped us to go and to accomplish those good works. I can't do it. You can do it, and you can do it. You have to go and to do the things that God has called you to do wherever he has called you to be. I can't be there. And not all of us can be where you are. But that's why he's given all of you the spirit. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you trust him for your salvation and you are his disciple, you are filled with the spirit in order to accomplish the things that God has called you to do. Things that no one else can do. But you know what? Maybe if you don't, someone else will. Someone else who's just willing. And I only say that is because the work of God can't be stopped. Thank you. We're not Baptists, but yes, we appreciate that. That's great. This is what we should be doing. And, and next week we're going to finish out this chapter here. We're going to talk a little bit more of what the actual ramifications of this day was to that group of people. But I just want to encourage you. There's no tinier application. It's just all really big picture, and I can't tell you exactly what to do. But what I can say is, when you leave from here, you are a person filled by the Holy Spirit and equipped to do and to accomplish God's work. So you better go do it. Because that's what we're in. We're in the last days, so we better get going. We don't know when that actual last day is going to be. But we should be doing what we can every day to accomplish the things that God has called us to do. And it's going to be different, Right? We're not all the same, but that's the point. All of these here went back home and all they did was just talk to people about the works of God. They spoke the message that they heard. That's all they did. It's not special. You don't need special training. 
Don't hide behind that. You don't need special training to do what God's called you to do. You just need to go do it. So weird application because I'm not telling you a specific thing to do. I'm just telling you to go do it. So I pray that you do. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have, in these last days, brought us together as your people, Lord, to accomplish your works, to accomplish the things that you have set out for us to do. Father, Lord, I pray that we would not let another day go by where we don't think about what are you calling me to do and how can I accomplish it? Lord, none of us are duds. If God can make a donkey talk to relay his message, he can use us. Lord, if you can use a fisherman to stand up on Pentecost and deliver a sermon where 3,000 people come to you, you can use us. Lord, you have equipped us. You have gifted us. You have given us your spirit. So, Father, I pray that we would Maybe take this time, this time of singing before we take the elements to celebrate Lord's Supper. Lord, I pray we would take that time to think about, am I doing what you've called me to do? Am I accomplishing those things? And if not, God, I pray that we would confess it to each other, not in any way, shape, or form for a for a moment of shame. That's not the point at all. The point is to be honest and to get fired up, to say, what am I supposed to do? Lord, I pray for those of us who have been called to pray for those who are to go out. I pray that we would do that for each other. I pray that we would see that us linking arms and praying for each other is us in in participation with the gospel to what you've called each one of us to do. And Lord, I pray as we continue to study through Acts and we continue to look in your word that you would, Lord, prompt us, you would encourage us, you would fill us up with your word, with understanding God to the point where we cannot be silent, but at the times that you appoint, Lord, we share those things you've called us to share. We speak up. And we do what you've called us to do. Lord, I thank you for refuge. And I pray that we would be found to be doers of your word. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.